to the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast, where we feature unscripted interviews with graduates of the United States Military Academy Class of 1991. The Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast with your host, Jamie Schleck, starts now. All right, welcome to episode number 18 of the Old Grad Podcast. Uh, today is June 2nd, and 2019, so it's 28 years that we've been graduated. We graduated, uh, we just passed our, our anniversary date, January uh, June 1st. So 28 years we've been out of the Academy, and I'm honored tonight to have our guest, uh, Anthony Noto. Anthony, are you there? Can you hear me? I am, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for, thank you for making the time to, uh, to be on this Old Grad Podcast tonight. Tonight's a really special time of the year for us, too, because it is the All-Academy Challenge, where West Point's taking on the four other service academies uh, in a uh, competition for who can show the most, um, who, who can raise the most participation f- toward giving toward their academy. And right now, uh, so we have a leaderboard that compares academy to academy, and I'm happy to say that West Point is currently still in first place. And then we also have a leaderboard by class. And so class of 91, we're in need of some improvement. Uh, we're in somewhere between 15th and 20th place right now. Last year we finished in, in fifth place overall. And um, I really would like to be able to see us uh, up our participation rate in the next uh, 24, 48 hours. And so um, I sent out an email to the class. So I saw that it was open 574 unique times. So definitely reached a lot of people. Right now, we have about 111 donors uh, who've donated to our uh, to to West Point and hopefully to our class gift, and um, hoping I would love to see that increase dramatically. So, Anthony, um, I know you have been uh, a very faithful and generous supporter of West Point over the years, and I think um, I'm very grateful for that. What um, what are some of your thoughts about? giving back and why it is that you give and to, and what, what causes you give to regarding West Point? Sure. Um, you know, it was a, I don't remember the exact um, year, but it was around 2001, 2002, maybe 2003 time period. Um, someone from the Association of Graduates had reached out to me and asked if I would have a cup of coffee with him. I was, at the, I was working at Goldman Sachs at the time. I think it was a vice president, I hadn't made a managing director or partner yet, so still relatively early in my time there. Um, and I didn't know who the gentleman was, or I didn't even know what, I didn't really understand that the word development was really code for uh, donations um, and charitable giving. And so I met with the gentleman who was a former uh, retired lieutenant colonel. Um, he wasn't very sophisticated in his approach at all relative to what I've now seen from other development um, officers and also development organizations through other organizations I've been um, associated with. And, um, you know, we're sitting there and he asked me for a huge sum of money for a donation. And I, and I said to him, wow, like you, you don't really know anything about me. I have, you know, a lot of kids, they're young. I, you know, have to pay for their college. There's a lot of things I have to pay for the rest of my life. Um, and so for you to ask me for that big of a number, I've ne- never heard anyone ask someone for that, that amount of money before. He was asking for $250,000. Um, and I was just like offended and blown away that he thought I could just write a check in a moment for that uh, amount of money. And, um, and he said to me in the most, um, steely eyed way you could imagine, uh, Anthony, I am pretty confident West Point has done more for you than you've done for West Point. 
And it was at that moment I really started to appreciate what the importance of giving back was and how we all had misperceptions that giving was an important element of what we received when we were at West Point and the support it provided. Um, and so I, I did my homework after that to truly understand how much giving mattered to the academy and what it funded and its importance relative to government funding. And I ended up uh, making my first large donation with Christy and I uh, back then in the 2000, 2003 time period. And we've given a couple other much larger and more significant gifts. And it's incredibly rewarding to be able to give back in not just areas of, of interest that I had when I was at West Point, but areas of interest for my, my family overall. That's awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you for that perspective. I, I, I also think about that myself. I mean, unfortunately, I, I probably will never be able to give back to West Point all that I've gotten out of it. I will continue to be uh, as, as generous as I can be. I, I know that I've given pretty much every year for the last, you know, almost since graduation, I think. But, you know, you think about like the life lessons and the impact and, you know, what it, what it, how it kind of affects everything that you do. And, um, you know, w- to just do whatever we can, you know, even if it's just $19.91, just get counted, you know. Uh, we have a goal. It's kind of a, a it's a pretty big goal uh, relative to what other classes have given um, from a participation rate perspective. I would like for us to set the standard by our thirtieth reunion and be at ninety one percent participation rate. We're currently right at around sixty one percent. I'm hoping with this all academy graduate all academy uh, challenge, we maybe will up it a little bit. But um, you know, we've got some we got some ground to cover. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, Company G2, you guys are at 75%, so that's pretty good. I mean, that's, that's among the highest in our class. You guys are running with our black group. I don't know if you saw the mail that we put out, but I kind of broke out our companies by, you know, the black, gray, and gold groups that we have. And so G2, you guys, you guys are the Gators, right, G2? Gators? The, the Gators have a WhatsApp uh, chain going and uh, a lot of chatter about making sure we all get back and find those, uh, those uh, company mates that haven't given them. You know, some of them are off the grid and we're trying to find them. So if you know any G2 Gators out there that uh, are in your in your area of operation, shoot us a note and we'll get them on the WhatsApp uh, chain for the Gators. Yeah, you got a couple of celebrities here. I'm looking at the list of the Gators, you know, so uh, some uh, some names I recognize like uh, Kenny Mintz. I went to a bunch of different schools with him in the Army and um, Chris uh, Spadavecchia is, was a fellow New Jersey uh uh, uh, we were both uh, nominated for the same congressman, and she's now Brigadier General Chris. Uh, Chris, right. uh, Char- um, Charlie, uh, Charlie Company at the prep school, also. Yeah, yeah. So you went to the prep school, right? I mean, like I would not have expected that you went to the prep school because I know. I mean, you were you know a star man. You, I don't think you'd you know you, you definitely excelled in academics. So why why the prep school for you? What 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 uh, what, what what drove you this, to the prep school? It was just one of those interesting, um, you know, turns of fate, so to speak. I, you know, I was recruited in high school by West Point to play both uh, baseball and football. I, I applied as my first choice. Um, and I remember receiving a letter, I don't know if it was March or April, that from the admissions office that I was fully qualified for admissions to the United States Military Academy. Um, and it had a list of things that remained to get done. And it said no, no nomination. And so I called the uh, football coach that was recruiting at the time. And I said, I got this letter today. Do you know what's going on? And he said, yes, we do. Your congressman, Hamilton Fish from Dutchess County, doesn't have any vacancies. He has five cadets currently in the academy. None are graduating. So he can't give a 
nomination to the incoming class. And I hadn't applied to um, for a presidential nomination, thinking that was much harder to get than just a congressional nomination. Um, and Coach, <clears throat> Coach Schumer said, listen, we can try to get you a nomination at large. You probably won't know until late May or early June. Or we could, you know, admit you to the prep school so at least you have a, you, you know you can come, but it's going to take an extra year. And at the time, I was evaluating a couple other um, uh, offers, and I had to make a decision relatively quickly. And so I finally just said, all right, I'll, let's get into prep school now, and then we'll hopefully I'll get a nomination, you know, in the next couple of months, and I can just come straight to West Point. Um, and so the next day he called me and said, you're in the prep school, and uh, we'll work on the nomination for you. Um, by the second or third week of May, you know, it still hadn't come through. And I remember thinking about the benefits of the prep school. I was a quarterback in high school. Um, I knew I was not going to play quarterback at West Point because we threw the ball in high school and West Point ran the option. And I also was going to have to navigate baseball versus football. It just started to become obvious to me that going to the prep school was going to be a great opportunity for me to develop a little bit more as an athlete, as a student, and, and more of a just figure out, do I want to play two sports at West Point? Because I was going to play both at the prep school. And so I called them back and said, you know, stop trying to get me a nomination. I, I think I just want to go to the prep school. And, and, and that, that's ultimately led to, uh, to me going to the prep school instead of going straight into West Point. What a what an interesting uh, way to get into the prep school. I mean, in terms of like, and also like a, the, the, the maturity of thinking about like giving yourself another year. I think that I personally was not really ready for West Point when I went there. I was, I was just not academically fit uh, going in, but I, I did go straight in and I ended up trying to use the first two years to catch up from where I should have been. But uh, I, I definitely would have benefited from a year at the prep school. I would have had a good time because all you prepsers, I mean, there's like so many... So many awesome prepsers, and you guys are all connected, you know? Like, who were the other prepsers in your company in G2 with you? Uh, in our company? Do you um, yeah, sure, absolutely. I, as I mentioned, Chris was in our company. Um, uh, Brett Peck is in our company. Joe Tenona. Um, uh, Price. I'm trying to think. Uh, it, it was alphabetical, so I think it was from uh, M to Z that was in the prep school. So, oh, they just, they just uh, applied it to alph- yeah. alphabetically that way? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I was just thinking about my company. So more broadly, out of Leon, Earl Lawson, um, we had a great uh, baseball team. Reggie Moore was a center fielder who played. Uh, Brent Bourne played first base. Uh, Brendan uh, Murphy was uh, our left fielder. Um, John Pomery was our pitcher. Uh, in football, we had, a, we had a phenomenal backfield. Brian McWilliams was quarterback. Otto was left halfback. I was right halfback. Paul Howard was, uh, was fullback. I don't think Paul ultimately graduated um, uh, from West Point, but it was a great, great group of, of people. And, you know, the bonds are always be tight. And whenever you, uh, you see a prepster, you always, you have that, that common bond. And it's just something that's really been uh, immeasurable in terms of the value it provided us when we got to West Point, but then in the rest of our lives. Brent Bourne was in my company. I uh, can't imagine him playing first base, but he was a pretty good basketball player. He played basketball. He could post people up playing basketball. Uh, he was, yeah, he was, he was good. But you know, so my company F1, we had Romano and Potter. So they were close R and P, but we had Bourne and Baxter. So I don't know why. So we had B's and we had the, you know, I don't know. I don't, it, it, it intrigues me how they set, how they set up the companies. And we're going to learn about this actually later this, later this year, uh, we got Mark Beeger who's coming on. I said, I want to understand like what goes into the thought of the thought process of how you set up a cadet company. I mean, obviously you need to distribute your, 
you know, your, 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 your females across, across the core. And then you probably have some sort of like secret formula for, you know, distributing like, you know, to have ethnically diverse companies and to have people that are athletes and people that are academic studs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I guess there's a, there, there's, there's some, there's some formulaic, uh, uh, planning that goes on. I'm interested to hear about that. Yeah. When we were at the Academy, there's a, a gentleman had done it for years. I think his last name was Stein. Um, I can't remember. He sponsored a bunch of cadets. They would know, remember his name. But the reason I know who assigned people to their room, uh, was two or their company was, was two things. My, uh, my first, uh, my roommates were John Bauman and Brett Luloff. Um, and the common, the common facts between John and Brett were they they were both Jewish. And as you know, the number of percentage of people at the academy that are Jewish is rel- relatively low. Um, and, uh, they would go to synagogue on Sunday nights during these barracks. Um, uh, and they would then get ice cream and cookies and stuff. And I always remember them coming back with a bunch of, uh, sweets that I would get the benefit from. And it was only a couple of years later that I found out that they were, we were all assigned to room together, um, on purpose, um, because this this gentleman that was responsible for was trying to take care of uh, two people that he had uh, supported getting into the academy, and I had done well at the prep school and won some awards. So he thought I would be, a, you know, squared away and help them out. Little did he know that I, I really didn't have a clue what I was doing on the military side. Mm. Yeah, I, was, I would be interested to see, if, see how see how that works. I, I I just had a flashback. I'm remembering Kyle King. Do you remember Kyle King? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, Kyle, I love. I just connected with him, by the way, on Facebook um, or on LinkedIn, because we, you know, we have a little, we have a little company F one, you know, um, WhatsApp chat. And I said I want to invite. You know, Kyle did not graduate with us. Kyle left in our first year. There's a bit of turbulence on his exit too. But I said we would, you know, Kyle, we would love to have you come to the 30th reunion if you would consider it. And he was very honored and touched by that gesture. Um, you know, we're two years away, but um, you know, kind of reconnecting with him and putting him back into the into the loop, I think would be great. But I remember, I remember Kyle. We I, we had some we had some uh, some drill roll that had other information about cadets, and there was this COC next to his name, which was Cadet of Concern, right? Because he was you know on double secret probation and all kinds of stuff. And I remember him getting so pissed off and like opening up the window and screaming out the central area, Kyle King is a cadet of concern. You know, he's fucked up. <laughs> Just, he was so funny, man. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's a great dude. I, I wish he had, I wish he had gone all the way through, but the Academy had other plans for him, unfortunately, but uh, he's doing really well. He's, he works in technology and uh, it looks like he's got a very happy life and a good career and, and that's great for him. So, um, so, so Anthony, tell me, like, you are like an incredible pace setter, and we we're I think almost all just in awe of your amazing career and what you have accomplished, uh, you know, thus far. And we're grateful for your generosity and leadership for the class. Uh, so, 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 give me the scoop right now. I mean, you're CEO of SoFi. Uh, tell me about your kids, where you're living, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we live in uh, Atherton, California. We moved out here and. Uh, 2015, I was, um, I was at Goldman and, uh, from 2000 after I left the NFL from 11 to 14, uh, we had, uh, taken Twitter public. I was covering a, um, a bunch of companies on the West coast and took 42 red eyes in the last year. And I had just gotten to the point where, um, the prospects of moving higher in, uh, in within Goldman Sachs, 
just weren't something that I was that interested in doing and our, our life and family life was too important. And so I made the decision to leave Goldman. I ended up going to Twitter um, as chief financial officer. And I was supposed to do that job from New York. We lived in Darien, Connecticut for uh, 18 years and, you know, had no interest in moving. I'd cover internet companies, you know, for the better part of my 15 years at Goldman. So I'd made the travel out here. Um, but when I took the job at Twitter, you know, it was obvious I would have to travel some, but I wouldn't have to be out here every week. And um, about six months in, the company wasn't doing well. The CEO asked me to take on additional responsibilities to run marketing and, and human uh, human resources. And I was leaving on Sundays and coming back on Fridays. And um, we were thinking about moving. And my mom had been sick for a couple of years with cancer. And, and she died in early April. And, and right after that, I, you know, I talked to my wife, Chris, and I just said, you know what, life's too short. We're moving. Um, I don't know what we're afraid of. And uh, we made the jump and moved out here um, and haven't looked back. Uh, we love the, we, we love where we live. I, yeah, I commute about, you know, 45 to 50 minutes to the city. Um, I stayed at Twitter for the next um, uh, three and a half years. And I, I left about a year and a half ago. After four years, I went from being the CFO to COO. And um, the, we had turned the business around. It was doing really well when I got a call about this CEO uh, job and I knew I would never be the CEO at, at Twitter. Jack and I were really close. I covered his other company, Square, as a banker uh, before he came to Twitter. So we we're not just close; we were friends. And you know, I knew he would never want to give up the CEO job at Twitter. And it was something we had a really open dialogue about. And he also knew I had, at some point would want to be a CEO at a, at a company. And I had no interest in going to SoFi whatsoever. In fact, Twitter just started to do well. The stock price had just started to do well. It was literally the first time in. In uh, four years, I was having fun. When I would recruit people, I'd actually say to them, the hardest thing I've ever done is uh, West Point. The second hardest thing I've ever done is Ranger School. And the third hardest thing I've ever done uh, is Twitter. And I said, the only reason that's not in front, in front of the two is I don't think I can get killed in this job, or at least there hasn't been evidence that anyone's been killed. Um, it was it was a grind for four years. But when the, the call came, I said I wasn't interested. And um, it, a series of events unfolded and it really unlocked a lot of my passion for uh, what allowed me to be successful when I was younger. A lot of people don't know this, but my, um, my mom and dad got divorced when I was three. I had an older brother, two years older and a younger brother, three years younger. My mom never graduated from high school. Um, my dad basically let, let her, well, you know, she had to raise us and she had to come up with the financial support to raise us. And so we were on welfare and food stamps. Lived in projects, slept in the same bed, I, I think, until I was nine or 10. And then, you know, she figured it out. She became a beautician, opened up her own shop, grew it, and then added tanning beds before anyone was even doing that type of stuff. And then workout equipment. And we went from literally living in projects to a townhouse to having a house to my mom remarrying and us having great financial support and going to good public schools and being able to play all the sports that we played. So as this person kept recruiting me on SoFi, I just started to dig into what they did and how it could change people's lives. And, you know, something found me that I, I would have never guessed I would have ever done, which is consumer finance. And so our mission is to help people reach the point that my, my family reached, which is we have enough money to do what we wanted, to have a house, play sports, do all the things that really are the American dream. And that's really hard to do today. You know, I, I have many, many people that I run into that have done really well in, in college have done well professionally and they can barely afford a house or kids or to live where they want to live. So, our mission is to help those people get to where they want to go. And it's incredibly rewarding. And, um, you know, my, my goal is to be here until they take me out in a, you know, in a journey. Wow. And, I, you know, by the way, just for those who don't know, Anthony was also asked to be the speaker this year at 100th night. 
And so there's actually a YouTube video of the of the 100th night speech, which was I found very fascinating. And and I and I, I told you I'm going to lift a few of your of your phrases and concepts and and uh, and use them myself. Um, and uh, I I love what you said about building the culture of the organization. That that is so important, and that your goal is to is to have the most uh, effective uh, culture in the world. So just. Uh, Tell me more about that, about, because obviously you have moved from various different, like, high-level organizations. You know, you, you're in the military, you're at Goldman, you're in the NFL, you're at Kraft, uh, Twitter, uh, each time making a big, bold move, each time, I think, bringing with you life lessons, but also trying to um, build cultures. So can you, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, the, the, the first time I actually started to understand what the word culture meant, I don't know that I've ever, ever would have used that word, was cr- frankly when we arrived at the prep school and, you know, every company had a different sort of um, thing it was known for, you know, same thing at West Point, you know, A1 was a really strict company and I won't say we were the slack companies, but that in essence was culture, but no one, you know, no one said this is the culture of those companies, but that, the reality is, is that personality that the company took on the way they people interacted, the way they took care of each other, they had each other's backs, the things they tried to accomplish, that, that's all culture. And it wasn't until I went to Goldman or was trying to interview to go to Goldman that I actually understood more of the academic foundation of culture or, or you know, a more educated way to talk about it. And there's a book that was written about the firm called uh, The Culture of Success. And um, one of the things that Goldman was notorious for is when they were hiring somebody, they made you go through 40 interviews and there's no end in sight to when the interview process was going to end. And I was an associate at Lehman Brothers getting my, you know, kind of like plea beer, literally like plea beer all over again. And I had already been a brand manager at Kraft. And I had a boss that was making me do facts and memos every day. And literally for nine months, he was just putting me through the ringer. And literally like it was plea beers. Like, what are you doing? You're not allowed to talk to clients. Um, don't tell me what stocks we should recommend. And he'd just make me do these menial tasks over and over. Um, but uh, the one good thing was he would go on vacation. And... When he went on vacation, he didn't want us to bother him. We could do whatever we wanted. So I wrote a report over Christmas of, uh, of uh, 1998 about the impact that e-commerce was going to have on regular retail. I was covering retail sec- sector at the time. Um, and a bunch of clients called in and asked about it. And that got me on the radio screen of Goldman. Um, and that's ultimately how I, I got hired there as an internet analyst. But in that process, I went through, uh, I think, over 40 interviews. And I was reading this book, Culture of Success. And it really solidified for me how that made such a differentiation in, in public companies as opposed to just military units, et cetera. Um, and Goldman had a phenomenal culture and it was incredibly differentiated. And I wanted to replicate that in other companies. When I got to Twitter, ironically, the culture was not very good. Um, it's actually a culture of anarchy. And I'd often use the analogy that you could, you could command your soldiers what to do, but, and they would do it, but they wouldn't do it in the way to help you win or accomplish a goal. And I, I would make up a story, you know, imagine you're about to cross the Iraqi border, you've been training for eight months, and it's your, your SPs at 3 a.m. in the morning, and at 1 a.m. in the morning, you say, you know what, we've practiced all of the major initiatives of this battle, and we have the battle planned down, and everyone has their assignments and the contingencies, um, and no one's more prepared than we're prepared. So let's not make stupid mistakes coming out of the gate. Make sure all the vehicles are topped off with fluids, oil, and water, and let's SP at 3 a.m., and... 5.30 a.m., you're halfway across the desert uh, from Kuwait to Iraq, and your vehicle comes to a screeching halt, and your driver hops out and opens up the hood and says, sir, we're out of oil. 
and you say to your driver, I told you to put oil in, or I told you to check the oil, and the driver turns around and says, sir, you did. I, I checked the oil. You didn't tell me to put the oil in. And, and that was the culture of Twitter. And it was very, very challenging to get things done. Um, and when I came to SoFi, it was a culture that was not very good. The CEO got pushed out. The CFO got pushed out. The CTO got pushed out for sexual harassment and other unsavory things. And it was a company that really wanted to have a great culture. Um, and as I was going through the interviewing process, there were a lot of things that made it attractive to me. One was this mission I was so passionate about. I'd seen a video of this gentleman crying. He was emotionally um, expressing his, his love for SoFi and how it helped him and his wife restructured their debt and he was a doctor and she was a lawyer so they could have kids. And I thought about it, I'm like, there's two people that have crushed it um, professionally, academically, and they don't have enough money to have kids. And so if I was helping them restructure their their debt. So that, you know, that was an eye opener for me. And then the company, you know, having a chance to build a leadership team and build that culture, um, that, those are things that attracted me. And so in formulating my pitch to the board and, and my pitch to the company, once I got there, I said, our goal should have the best culture in the world. And the board said, well, that seems kind of like a hyperbole. And I laughed because I remember using that once during one of our comms hours and I got in trouble. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I said, it, it, it could be definitely hyperbole. And, and I don't mean to say it's easy, but it doesn't take technology to do it. And it certainly doesn't take money to do it. And it certainly doesn't take some level of innovation. It just takes leadership and accountability and alignment. And so why shouldn't that be the goal? Why shouldn't we try to be the best in the world? That's something that's 100% in our control. Wouldn't you want to work for that company? Wouldn't you want to have an impact in the world working for that company? And so that was the thinking behind it. And I've said it publicly on CNBC and other places. Now, I'll always get a message from somebody giving me shit about it. And they're like, you know, you know, be careful what you're signing signing up for. But to me, that's that's where I think we should get to, and that's what I'm determined to help us get to. I want to put a pin in this on, on the values and come back to it, talk about the 100th night, but at, for, at first I want to take a, a, just digress for one second and acknowledge all the people that are on the line with us that are listening through Facebook. So uh, Tom Tom Sapola, Paul Smolchek, Keith Brown, Greg McGavro, Brian Fitzgerald, Holly Fishburn, uh, Matt Lewis, Lisa Woodman-Rubbles, uh, Randy Judd, Chris Barden, Matt Lewis, Cami Iannaco, uh, John Palsisco, so Terry Rice. I saw Tim Thatcher was on there too. I think uh, Dave Romano. So we have um, we have a good good group of uh, classmates, and they're all kind of peppering in questions or saying a few things. And I'll, if they, if you say something, um, you have a question uh, for Anthony, pepper it into the comment feed. I'll I'll ask I'll ask those questions or. If, Something to you want them to expand upon, but um, you know, I, I mentioned we just celebrated 28 years since we graduated. This is a, a big eventful uh, time of uh, for, for the academy, but also we graduated a bunch of legacy cadets. Uh, you know, cadets that are 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 our classmates' uh, children, and so I think I have everybody here. I want to mention them. So uh, Patrick Cowley uh, is the son of uh, Sean Cowley. Uh, Keegan West, Mark and Holly West's uh, son, graduated. Uh, Freddie Kratz, uh, Cadet Freddie Kratz, graduated, who's uh, the son of uh, our classmate Fred Kratz. Jake Pettit uh, from Tom Pettit. And, um, and Catherine Hall, uh, Andy, Andy Hall and Mary Lou Hall is class of 92. And then also Megan Burke, uh, who is um, the daughter of Tom Burke. And also I saw, I saw a poster recently that we've got... Um, Two of our classmates recently were promoted to Major General, uh, which is great. Uh, John Braga is Major General and also John Richardson. And also congrats to John Gerald, 
who just retired down at the 82nd. And I think he spent uh, the majority of his career um, doing some pretty uh, heroic things, uh, flying people around into different uh, uh, situations in um, special operations community. So uh, thank you for your service to our country. And we're very, very proud of... Uh, of all of our uh, of all of our legacy cadets and our, our other classmates that continue to serve on active duty, um, and then um, so so just going back, Anthony, to this concept of um, values and 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 uh, and how it has kind of been thematic throughout your career. You mentioned in your hundredth night speech that you know these are these are values that you brought with you from West Point and from the military and that, you know, they may have different names in corporate speak, but they really go back to things like duty on our country. And so, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the SOFI values and which ones of those you could map back to your cadet experience? Sure. Absolutely. And you know, the, the, the video of the speech is, is on YouTube for anyone that's interested, but just very quickly at a high level. Um, and, and the irony of, of this is I didn't come up with the values of, of SoFi knowing what they represented in the way that I, I talk about at the hundredth night speech, I was preparing the hundredth night speech, um, and the connectivity between our values and duty on our country w was so aligned. So it was, um, you know, as I was thinking about, the magnitude of that of that um, opportunity as a guest speaker and what I need to talk about, you know, these are these core values I have. I, I've kind of carried around for a long time. They they are part of what we have at at, so, at SoFi. But um, it was when I was actually writing the speech that I made the connection, um, and you'll, you'll you'll get it pretty quickly. Um, and so the three that I highlighted at Hunter's Night are um, make your footprint bigger than your foot, uh, get to the truth. Um, and, and run after problems. Um, and in, in that speech, I show the connectivity between each one of those um, and duty on our country, get to the truth. Uh, it's one of our core values. The, the point of it is to truly be excellent. You can't be excellent without getting to the truth. And so you need to get a diverse set of opinions. You have to get all the data. You have to get all the perspectives and get to the reality of the situation and assessing the situation. And then all the implications of, of what you assess before you make a decision and if you make a decision because you've decided that's what you're going to do without going through that process, your probability of success is going to be pretty low. But if you instead you take a step back and say, what are the principles we're solving for? What are the date? What's the data against the principles? Um, what, what's all the perspective against those principles? And then make a decision. You have a much better odds of success. And the one thing about companies like Twitter and SoFi is we have reams and reams and reams of data. Um, and there's a lot of analysis and people are very good at putting together the data that support their point of view. And we can't do that. We have to actually get all the data that matters and not shortcut it in any way. And you know, I talk about at Hunter's Night that there are many leaders I've, I've had the unfortunate um, opportunity to work with where they made a decision before that any of the data and that was destined for success. The other benefit of getting to the truth um, before you make a decision that you get buying, you get alignment, and you can also hold people accountable. And when you walk out, you can disagree, but you're, you're aligned. So getting to the truth is, is very similar to, um, as you'd imagine, honor. Um, you know, running after problems, um, you know, to me, running after problems is critical. You know, Jamie and I were talking beforehand. Um, this is something that I, I learned when I was at Goldman Sachs. The people that make partner at Goldman Sachs are the people that run after problems. They're not the people that say that's not my problem. 
because in any organization, especially matrix organizations, um, where you know your life's not on the line, as opposed to the military, where your life could be on the line, is there, there's no stated responsibility for what falls between the cracks. There are bright lines between my unit and your unit, but there's this gray area that overlaps. And in many organizations, you can get away with not paying attention to that gray area. And so, how in a civilian organization, a you know public company organization, how do you get people to embrace running after the problem and taking that risk of not being able to solve it? Um, the, the risks in the military are so great that it's a natural thing to do because the difference between survival um, and, and not surviving and in a company, that may not be the case. You individually could survive, but the organization may not do as well. And that may not have any ramifications for you. So how do you, how do you build that type of culture that, that runs after problem, uh, runs after problems? And the last one, make your footprint bring on your foot. I like to make an analogy to sports here primarily because it's, um, it's the impact that people can have and relate to. Um, and so I, I'm, I talk about Steph Curry and Michael Jordan and Wayne Gretzky and them being three people that make the other four people on the basketball court or on the ice better than they otherwise would be. They make their footprint bigger than their foot. I um, mean, in many organizations, people will come up with great ideas and they'll use that to promote their own organization or drive their own organization's results where that idea could apply to 10 other units. And, you know, as a platoon leader, you can come up with an SOP in the motor pool or some type of SOP um, when you get hit with an ambush or some type of SOP for uh, reconnaissance and the whole the whole world would benefit from that SOP and you're an idiot if you just keep it to yourself instead of sharing with everyone so everyone's better, not just your unit better, just like these three great athletes. So we like to talk about playing for the name on your front of your jersey, not the back of your jersey and make your footprint bigger than your foot. So, um, um, you know, that's country. And I should mention run after problems is, is duty. It's your, it's your duty to run after problems. It's, you know, to be honorable, you have to get to the truth. Um, and countries about doing things for the front of your jersey, not the back. And that's make your footprint bigger than your foot. I love it, man. That's, that was so great and so poignant and so connected, I think, to the values that we all hold dear. And uh, it, I found it inspirational, man. It was, it was great. Uh, thank, you for, thank you for those insights and, and giving me something to uh, take with me to work tomorrow and, and work a little harder. Although, actually, I'm not working tomorrow. I'm golfing tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to, but I'm going to the, um, going, there goes that out the window. yeah, yeah. I'm going, I'm going to, um, the, uh, Johnny Mac foundation, uh, uh, fundraiser, which is at West Point. So, uh, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great. Yeah. So, uh, Johnny Mac foundation, uh, is a guy from class of 86. They had, um, I think they may have like us only had one classmate who was killed in action. This guy, Johnny Mac. And, um, and so they raise money every year and then they take that money and they re-gift it to veteran service organizations. It's been going on for a number of years. And so I'll be at West Point tomorrow doing the, uh, Johnny Mac foundation. But on Tuesday, I'll take this stuff to work with me and I'll, I'll, I'll regurgitate it. So you golf today, right? I heard. I, uh, Kristen and I got in nine holes. Did you? That's nice that you, yeah, you do that yeah. as a couple. So you, you, do you have a handicap? I do. What is it? Oh, you want, you want me to say what it is? Yeah, uh, I want to hear. I want to I hear what the I, CEO I, of, of SoFi has as, as a handicap. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not. It's not as low as it used to be. I actually, have to, I don't want to lie. I don't. I don't want to get in trouble for lying. So I got to actually give me ten seconds here to bring it up on my phone. <laughs> okay. Um, it's because the thirty first of just. Well, I think I'm a thirteen one. Oh, that's pretty good, man. That's awesome. 
I'm in, I'm so bad at golf. I I, I gotta is get that, better. Uh, golf is game. foreign to me. So is that a good number? Uh, Thirteen good is good. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah, very, yeah. Especially for someone like him who probably only plays only a few times a month. Well, what's your handicap? Like sixty-five or? No, it's, I, it's it's my handicap's like twenty-four right okay. now. It sucks. Is that like, like that's I'm, terrible? I'm, it's, that's like that's like like remedial golf. Like your first year <laughs> of being a golfer, you could buy have a twenty-four hand. So if I were to break out Microsoft Golf on the computer, that would I would probably play I, better I than you. Probably would. Yeah, that. it's pretty bad. So I, I'm not a member of a club right now. I just got into I got into a little bit of an altercation at my club. I got into a little a little scuffle with the pro, so I left in protest. <laughs> oh, yeah. So uh, I got to go rejoin another club right now. So I'll be golfing tomorrow at West Point, and uh, should be a good time. The course so, is great. Yeah, yeah. So that's nice that you guys golf together. So now she's been golfing for a number of years as well. Christy is no, your wife, right? Christy. Uh, Kristen. 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 Um, yeah, uh, she she only really got serious in the last uh, eighteen months, but she's doing great. And you guys been married for twenty seven years. We got married January eleventh, ninety two, at the at Pitta Chapel. Wow. So uh, was she part? Uh, obviously, you probably dated her a little bit as a cadet. I think, right? So, like, was she was she your girlfriend like for most of West Point, or when how'd you guys meet? Give me the whole rundown there. Yeah, no funny story. We um we met in seventh grade. Uh, we grew up together. Our friends, group of friends, were really tight. Um, and she and I and a couple of my other buddies were really close with a couple of her friends. And um, she went away to school when I was at West Point. And she went. She ended up transferring back to school in, in Poughkeepsie, uh, Vassar, and then Marist. And so, my time we were cows yearlings. We you know, go home, go to, go to where I grew up and go to bars. And I started seeing her at bars and we, so her group of friends and uh, the guys I was hanging out with. And then I think it was April of our cow year. We actually started dating after being friends for a very long time. And, and that led to ultimately getting married in January 92. Wow. Five, five kids and 27 years later. So give me a rundown of the kids. Uh, Marissa is 25. She is in Manhattan. Uh, she was in investment banking for two years. Now she does private equity. She went to uh, Penn. She played lacrosse there. Uh, Gabriella is 21. Um, she was also recruited for lacrosse. And one of the reasons why it was easy for us to move, she committed as a sophomore in high school to go to Stanford. So we moved going into her junior year after she'd made that commitment. Um, and so she's finished her sophomore year and she'll be doing an internship in Manhattan. Um, and then, um, Ellie just finished ninth grade, um, at, uh, Sacred Heart, um, Catholic school out here, prep school. And then we have, uh, boy, girl twins that are 13 that are going into eighth grade. Wow. That's quite a brood. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is your, it's fun. uh, so lacrosse is a big part of your family's, uh, DNA. Does everybody play lacrosse or just the, the oldest two? Um, you know, it's, it's funny when I, where Chris and I grew up, we didn't have lacrosse. Um, we, I played football, hockey, basketball, baseball, road crew. She rode crew and did track. Um, when we moved to Darien, Connecticut, it was, um, it was really big in the town and, uh, Marissa, um, we'd moved, I think Marissa was in, uh, just going into kindergarten and, you know, we signed her up for softball after a year. She didn't like that. And then basketball after a year, she didn't like that. And, um, a couple other sports she didn't like, and then, fifth grade lacrosse started back then it started fifth grade now it starts in kindergarten and uh she went out for lacrosse and loved it and 
we had a ski house and there's a cement wall down in the basement every day after skiing, she'd be down there bouncing the ball off the wall, getting her left hand and right hand really strong. And sixth grade, you know, she played was really good. And before you knew it, I was coaching her and part of the community. And then her younger sister, Gabriella, um, they're separated by about, uh, uh, four years. Um, she picked it up and she started playing in, in kindergarten and, um, and Ellie, uh, who's a ninth grade place. She, this is a humble brag. Um, but she made the Under Armour um, All-American team yesterday as a rising 10th grader. And wow. I, just, just, just a workhorse. They're all self, self-made self and kind of figured out on their own. And then um, Anthony plays lacrosse and baseball and football. Um, and then Avery has played lacrosse, but she just switched to water polo. So it's been a sport that's definitely brought us together and, and something that is uh, really special and you know, we watch games together. We'll be in different parts of the country. We'll all be watching games online of different, you know, Final Four, you know, championship, et cetera. And Kristen's been on the U.S. lacrosse board for the last, I think, eight years. And basically the West Point women's lacrosse team was something that came into existence because of a generous donation from the Noto family, right? Yeah, what happened was um, I, was at, I was at the NFL, I think it was 2008, and um, Kevin Anderson was the athletic director and Navy had just started a division one women's lacrosse program and they'd only been a club and army had only been a club. And Kevin was hit, hitting me up, to, you know, to donate more money, more money. And I, you know, the football program hadn't been doing well and I'd given a lot of money generally, but also to that. And I said, you know, I would give more money if it could have a broader impact. And, you know, Navy has women's lacrosse and, you know, it's been a big part of my family's life. And if my girls, and I think Marissa was only 13 at the time, you know, I said, if they ever wanted to go to West Point and wanted to play college lacrosse, they wouldn't be able to go because they don't have the on lacrosse. And I have no idea if they will go. And my guess is they probably won't, given, um, you know, they're going to want to go to one of these top 30 schools in the country in, in the sport, and it would take a long time to get there. I said, but the, how many girls are in Long Island? It's, a, it's really a kind of a it's a polarized sport. There's, you know, lower middle-class families that use it as a way to get out of their economic upbringing. And there's, you know, really elite areas that that are, you know, high income areas. And so I started pushing him to say, this could really increase the diversity of West Point. How many women don't go to West Point because we don't have lacrosse. And then I started talking about lightweight crew and rugby and field hockey and a bunch of other sports. And, I was on the campaign for us all cabinet, um, which was the last major fundraiser. And there was a bunch of superintendents priorities and I pushed them hard to put lacrosse on there, women's lacrosse on there, and they wouldn't put it on there and a bunch of other women's sports. And I said, I'm not giving another donation, a big donation until we get women's lacrosse. I'll do my, you know, $25,000 a year for the athletic, which is a lot of money. I didn't mean to say it's not, right. but they were asking for much more than that. I'll, I said, I'll do that every year for the eight club, but I'm not writing another big check until we, we start to focus on women's sports and in particular well, women's lacrosse. Um, and, uh, and the campaign for us all, I said to the cabinet, I said, we're putting one hand behind our back. We're going out and raising money just from the academy grads, which guess what? It's, you know, 90% men. Well, the world's not 90%, and there are plenty of incredibly successful women that would love to get back to West Point as their second or third school. Meg Whitman, you know, went to Harvard Business School. She went to Princeton undergrad. She's worth $5 billion. Why can't we be their third school? Why can't we be America's school? And I said, well, we're not going to kill them. It's only 10% of the academy's women. We should be 50-50. And um, I started pushing hard on targeting um, non-West Point females that are leaders and successful 
when you start to put together a story on why they should donate, it's a lot stronger when you say, well, let's build these programs to get the academy to be 50-50. And the academy needs to be 50-50, just like the army, just like the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, it never happened. And then Boo Corgan came in as the athletic director. And I'll never forget, he called me. I was back at Goldman at the time. And uh, he had just gotten the job. And they must have gave him a list of who to call when he got the job. And I hadn't met him. And I wasn't involved in the hiring process. And he called and I said, you must be calling me about the women's lacrosse program. He goes, what? <laughs> I said, the women's division one lacrosse program, it's your first priority, right? He goes, no, I just call and introduce myself and say hello. And you're, you know, giving back a lot. And we really appreciate that. I want to build a relationship. I said, okay, well, here's how we can build a relationship. Get division one women's lacrosse at West Point. Um, and I think Mercer at that time was already at uh, Penn and never even considered West Point. Mm-hmm. Um, and Gab and Gab Gabriela wasn't considering it either. And she was a, I think, eighth grader going into ninth grade. Anyway, uh, a couple years later, Boo came back. He's all right. Get the checkbook out. We, we got General Kazan on board. This is a way to get us to hire diversity of the academy and females. And our goal is to get to 30, 35, 40 percent. So we had women's lacrosse. Uh, I think they had already added women's rugby, and there's a couple other sports which I don't know if they're still going to do or not. And so we wrote a we wrote the check that he told us we had the right to make it happen, and I couldn't be prouder of having done it. What a leader, man! I'm so proud of you guys. I'm, you know, they're just in awe, and thank you for that. I mean, I it also it makes me think going back to your your hundredth night speech, you know, the importance of, of diversity is something that's like part of the noto mantra of, um, of leadership. And, um, and you mentioned too, that like in that speech, you went back to your first platoon, your first, but you were a signal officer. Uh, your first platoon was 50% women, uh, 50% men. And you said that made you a much better unit as a result. But yeah, much better leader and unit. You know, you, you don't think about these things when you're a cadet because you don't have to deploy troops all over the world. But we were, um, our, my, my unit was responsible for um, putting in the communication architecture in a tactical area of location, area of operation. So it was um, the MSRT equipment or MSC equipment, which was digital um, uh, packet switch before, you know, the internet was a thing. It was packet switch, internet-based, IP-based, voice data, um, and video. And so we would have to fly to, let's say, real world situations in Egypt. We actually went there for Bright Star. My unit would go in before the, you know, the combat units, we would establish comms and the, and the, and the line of sight radios that allowed you to pick up your MSRT phone or, uh, in your vehicle or in your, in your talk or whatnot, um, and to send email messages, et cetera. And, um, you know, that unit, when I showed up, was 69 people, half men, half women. They'd actually just come back from Iraq because it was a 24th ID, and that was their area of operation. Two of the women in my unit were 19 years old and pregnant. Um, and you could do the math pretty quickly. They'd been gone for more than nine months. And so they clearly got pregnant while they were in there, and they weren't married, and they weren't married to anyone in the unit, um, nor were they seeing anyone in the unit. And so I, I faced, like, real-world problems, like, in an instant. I'm like, how did this happen? Or... It was it consensual? Was it not consensual? And you just, a thousand things start running through your head. Um, and so when we would get deployed, I would send a small extension node, you know, 80 kilometers away in one corner of the area of operations. I think it was a rectangle, another small extension node to another corner. Well, in those, in that group of three Humvees with big shelters on the back, um, there'd be, you know, call it six people, two people in each vehicle. Well, if there's one woman and five men, and they're going to be out there for, 10, 12 weeks, 15 weeks, which is what was the case when we were in Egypt. Like, is that the right 
mix of people to have and how do you ensure her safety and you're gone for a very long time and these are young men and young women and just bad things happen. And so I, I learned very quickly it needed to be 50-50 with the right level of seniority and the right people I could trust. And it was something I, you know, I worried about it every day and I would get in my vehicle every day and try to hit at least one corner of our rectangular area of operation. So people never knew when I was coming over the horizon and I'd show up at night with my night uh, vision goggles on, penetrate the perimeter and walk up to somebody that was sitting there shooting the shit, flirting with one of the young girls. Hey, what's going on? And, you know, word would get out pretty quickly. Um, you know, that L2, you know, wasn't going to allow people just to do what they wanted for 10, uh, 15 weeks and so many other things. And there were, you know, the army didn't necessarily have a culture of you get to decide who your team leaders are. And, and especially in these sense, you can, you can give people responsibility that may not have the, uh, the rank yet. And, uh, it really creates a unique dynamic when you start to give more responsibility to people that are more junior, but they have, have the same rank or, or are close enough. And so anyway, I've learned a lot. Uh, I made a lot of mistakes. Um, I'm just telling you the things that I did, but a lot of them were driven by, you know, things almost happening bad or, potentially borderline bad and um and it really makes you think much more about the importance of it um and so you know i want our board to be 50 50 and i want our company to be 50 50 at every level not just the overall company the overall company's 50 50 now but you know my cfo is a female our head of hr is a female our chief marketing officer is a female our head of our personal loans is a female um you know, our head of lantern like i wanted 50 50 across the board yeah, and the diversity doesn't just stop with male female too. It's it's you know lived experience, ethnic diversity. You know, um, you know all of that. I think is something that's uh, also you know connects directly to that uh, concept. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, all underrepresented classes, sexual orientation, et cetera, all across the board. So um, we've been jumping around a little bit here. You were a signal officer, and that was because you were told you were not commissionable as a combat arms officer, right? So what was the story? How, how did that come about? Um, uh, basically, my so my first two years at West Point, I was a fullback. And uh, in the spring of my sophomore year, they switched me to inside linebacker. And um, it was like a dog in water. I'd never played defense. It was like the most natural thing in the world. Uh, to me, as a, as a fullback, I never felt like I was faster, quick enough, and it was always working and working, working to try to get there. And I was, I was second string fullback at that time, and someone may have been hurt, which made me second string, but they were not going to play the, in the fall. And Coach Young came up to me and said, "Hey, we need linebackers, and you know, we always thought about you as being a linebacker. And I know you're second string, but we need linebackers. So switch for the last eight practices, and if you're not starting in the fall, we'll move move you back to fullback." And I switched over and it was, it was, it was the most fun I'd ever had uh, playing football and it was just natural and I loved it in ways I never would have thought. And uh, we were playing the spring game and I started in the spring game and I had a great first half. Our coach came up and said, great, great spring. Like you're in a great position, 13 tackles, you're done for the day. And I said, well, let me, let me I want to play second half. My dad just got here. I want, I want to play one more series. He's like, all right, one more series. And I went out and, I blew out both my knees in that series, both my ACLs and both knees. It was a freak thing that happened and happened for a reason. I'm not sure I'll ever really know, but then it, it's led to a lot of different things in my life that wouldn't have probably happened otherwise. Um, so they, it was one, are, it was one event, right? Like, so you had like one tackle or one sort of collision and boom, both ACLs blown. Well, yeah, one play, both ACLs blown and they were, 
back then, the way they would know if your ACL was blown is they would test one knee and then compare it versus the other. They tested both my knees and said they're both the same. You're fine. Go home for the weekend. And so, um, we had, I think it was army a, medicine. <laughs> yeah. So I think I think we had a three day weekend. And since I lived in Poughkeepsie, I was supposed to go someplace, so I canceled it. And uh, I went home for the weekend, and I was on crutches. And I remember being at the mall, South Hills Mall, which is back then it's, it's closed now, on crutches. And um, my uh, my mom got somehow got a message because cell phones weren't. Um, and uh, they said I had to go back to West Point that my knees were really hurt bad. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm at the mall of all places yeah. where the last thing I should be doing right now, but they told me I was fine. So I went back to West Point and they, they admitted me to the hospital and they said, we're going to scope both your knees. We watched the film and there's no way you didn't tear something. And we just can't tell because they're both traumatically hurt. And so um, that same day that I got hurt, our free safety O'Neill Miller, who was an All-American and returned to interception for a touchdown against Alabama in the Sun Bowl and knocked out Howard Cross, who played for the Giants in that same game. He blew his knee out that same day, so we're in the same hospital bed. And uh, Coach Young came to me and he said, listen, uh, you know, you're probably not ever going to get to play again. I'm so sorry. We shouldn't have let you go back in. It was such a cheap shot. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm playing in the fall. And he was like, Anthony, you're, you're not going to play football. And I said, Coach, I'm playing in the fall. And I just didn't know what was wrong with my knees. I didn't understand what an ACL was. So anyway, they scoped it. They said, we're going to scope your knees. If, if one of them is blown out, then we're going to scope the other one. If it's not blown out, we're going to close it up, and then we'll check the other one after that one get, gets right. And, and you're not going to go to D. I was supposed to go to Fort Jackson for DCLT. You're going to stay here all summer in rehab. So I wake up after the surgery. I put my hands under the covers, and I feel bandages on both knees. I'm like, oh, fuck. And the doctor came in and said, you have no ACL on either knee. Your right knee, MCL's torn, and the capsule's torn. You have torn cartilage, and you're done. And and I said, what do you mean I'm done? He said, you're not going to be able to play. It's going to take you two years to rehab your knees. And I said, well, what happens if I don't do the surgery? And he goes, well, you, 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 you can't play with no ACL. And I said, well, O'Neal told me he's not doing surgery. And he goes, well, O'Neal's a senior and he can't come back next year. You, 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 you can get the surgeries done and have a chance. But if you don't do the surgeries, you're going to hurt your knee worse. You might not be commissionable. Mm-hmm. So O'Neal said, if, O'Neal said you could rehab it and make the muscles strong enough to make up for the ACL. So I'm going to, spend the summer with O'Neill, I'm going to do that. And he just shook his head. He goes, listen, let's talk in August and then we'll schedule your surgeries. So that summer, O'Neill and I stayed there and um, just worked out every day as hard as we could, eight hours a day. And um, August came and there's something called volunteer summer training where all the football players come back and that's their second cycle event. So first cycle, you do airborne, the DCLT or CTLT. Then second cycle is really just training preseason before the preseason happened. And I was out doing seven on seven, which is a passing drill. And Dr. Ryan walks up. He goes, what, what are you doing? Said, I'm doing seven on seven. He's like, you cannot play football with no ACL. What You're going to ruin your knees. I'm like, sir, I'm, I'm playing and I, I feel like I'm 100%. And so um, they brought me in the training room and told me I had to have the surgery. I said, you know, what? if my knees slip out, I'll have the surgery. But until then, I'm playing football. And they said, okay. And I played that junior year and they slipped out all the time. But never, I never really, you know, told them the extent they slipped out, but they slipped out a little bit in poor cartilage, but never like really, really bad, but enough where I'd get dizzy and see stars and sometimes get sick to my stomach. And so I made it through junior year and it wasn't until the end of the season that I really, really felt healthy. And I, I just played special teams and I got in a couple of games, but not a lot. And then in spring ball, I, I played, I had to have them cleaned out, did two scopes to clean out some of the cartilage. Uh, and in spring ball, I earned the starting position back and then played all through all 12 games our senior year. And, 
um, had a, you know, we had a, you know, winning record and, um, Navy. and then in the Navy and, uh, and then, um, in January, I knew I had to have my knees done because I knew they weren't stable and they would slip out. And so I knew I wanted to go be a ranger and go airborne in the infantry. And so we scheduled the surgeries um, and I uh, had my left knee done on um, January, I think it was 15th. And that was literally when the Gulf War started. I watched literally the Gulf War air war start while I was in the hospital for a week. And then my right knee done in April, which is when I think the ground war started. Again, it just happened by accident that both both were at the same time as my knees. And so in order for my commissioning physical, um, I failed. And the reason I fell was because I was on crutches and I couldn't barely walk and I couldn't run. And there were civilian doctors, all the, all the military doctors that we had on post were deployed to Iraq. Um, and so the guy just went by the book. He said, you you can't pass the APFT. You can't even walk, let alone run. You're immobile. You're disqualified. You're not going to be an officer. And so I got word to the our doctors over in Iraq, I said, what can I do? And they said, well, the best you can do is get a waiver. There's no way from over here, we're going to be able to fight to get you, um, to get you to combat arms. So get a waiver to do non-combat arms. And so my idea was to get the non-combat waiver and then find a way to get back. to. So I actually branched infantry on branch night. I, you know, I opened up cross rifles. Um, uh, and it wasn't until we were picking assignments that I got DQ'd officially, um, and the whole infantry, uh, everyone at branch infantry will probably remember that my name was up on the board as like number two or three to pick. And they said, oh, no, has been disqualified. They took my name off the board and everyone cheered, of course, because now right, cause another a great post is open. So that's my claim to fame on my knees. Um, so anyway, I, uh, I had to bite the bullet and I had to pick a non-combat arm. So, um, that's what happened. Yeah, you ever think about like what like and and you said in the in the pre notes in the pre call and also in the notes that you wish you'd push harder to have combat arms because you end up going to ranger school you end up being like a you know stud signal officer uh, but they basically said you can't go infantry. Do you ever think about like would you maybe stayed in? Would you have done something differently? I mean, like what like the alternative uh, reality of what could have happened? Yeah, I think if you know, I remember very vividly getting a, a note from, uh, at the time was Major Cohn, or he may have been promoted to Colonel, ultimately became a general and unfortunately passed away from cancer. He's a big 11th ACR guy. He was, uh, he was my PL 300, uh, leadership professor. Mark West and I were in the same class. Um, and I remember Mark went armor and, um, you know, went to the 11th ACR. I didn't really understand the units in the army and I didn't really understand the role of armor. When, when I say the role, I understood the role of armor. I didn't understand this simple fact, the people that run the army are generally going to come from combat arms. Mm -hmm. They're going to come from infantry. They're going to come from infantry arm or, or, uh, or field artillery. Um, that's who becomes the chief of staff of the army. Those are the generals that run divisions, but no one really teaches you that at West Point. But when I went to the 24th ID, which is a mechanized infantry division, and I was started getting deployed So I was a platoon leader. So I was attached my platoon get attached to the second brigade. And that was the, unit we supported. And so I worked really close with the second brigade executive officer. And after our second or third deployment, you know, he started relying on me for things, not just signal related before you knew it. I was like doing logistical stuff and other combat arm stuff that I probably shouldn't have been doing. But like, he was like, you're a good Lieutenant. You get shit done. And I don't give a crap that you're wearing signal flags. Like you're a ranger and I'm going to have you do this. And I would like be the advanced party, I'd be the late, I don't know what it was called, the last person out of the area of operation. 
And, um, you know, he was having me do stuff that other platoon leaders or captains should be doing that were in, in their armored division or mechanized infantry, you know, uh, battalions. Um, but when we did the op order and I walk into the room, you know, there'd be a chair against the wall with the signal officer on it. And I'd sit in that chair against the wall. And after the meeting happened, where everyone else sitting at the table, he'd call me over and say, all right, this is what I need you to do. And I just realized I was always going to be the dude against the wall and not at the table. So I called General Bonson, uh, who I got to know when I was a cadet, and I said, hey, I made a mistake. You know, Major Cohen had sent me a note when I was a, when I was about to graduate that said I needed to fight, go and signal, and, and get go to combat arms and do, do armor. I didn't really understand the implications of what he was telling me, and I, I probably should have listened. I'm now, you know, two and a half years in. I'm about to become the assistant S3, which, you know, I'm just going to get deployed in every – every deployment because I'm a signal ranger West pointer and all these infantry brigade commanders, they they're going to grab me and I'm going to be deployed all the time and I'm never going to really be in charge. So I think I want to switch to armor. I don't think my knees will hold up being doing infantry. Um, they're fine, but they're, you know, they're not going to be perfect in 20 years, a long time. And he, he called Washington and called me back. He said, we can get you to armor, but you've got to promise me you're going to stay 20 years. And I went home and talked to Kristen and thought about it. And I said, can you give me one month to think about it? He's like, yeah, think about it. He's like, they're not waiting for me to call back. So think about it. And literally in that next month, um, Saddam Hussein had come down to the border um, of, uh, of Kuwait and threatened to attack Kuwait in 24th ID. He was responsible for um, the Middle East. And I was the assistant S3. And sure enough, uh, the, we had a quick reaction force, which I shouldn't be deployed. The, the platoon, the second platoon that I, you know, from Bravo Company, which I used to run, you know, they should go with the second brigade. And sure enough, the quick reaction force happened to be second brigade. And they called down and said, we want NOTO. We don't want second platoon. And he's coming with us in advance party. And so I went home and said goodbye to Kristen and her daughter and called my mom and, you know, went to the tarmac at Hunter Army Airfield four days in a row thinking we're wheels up and four days in a row. Um, we pulled up, we, you know, we, 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 um, we stood down and waited for instructions. And then, um, you know, on the fifth day, uh, we, we, um, we got sent back to post and we had beepers then. And, um, I went to work out because anxiety was pretty high and I got back to the unit and they said, Hey, the, uh, the, the they're taking off at 5 PM. I'm like, Oh fuck. I, I'm, I don't have, I gotta go back and get my, they're like, no, you're not going. I'm like, why am I not going? And, and they said, well, um, he's pulling off, but we're sending the troops anyway. So he knows that we'll do it next time, but he's backing off and they reached an agreement with, uh, with Saddam and, and the, the wheels are rolling and we don't want you to sit there for nine months doing nothing. So we need you to go to, we need you to go someplace else. And it was right then and there that I realized that, um, the most excited I was, was about was when we're about to go to war. And I, you know, was never really going to, love what I was doing unless I was deployed someplace. And, and, uh, I just realized I wouldn't ever be in charge. I'd always be the guy that was being used to help make up for some shortfall. So I decided I couldn't commit to 20 years. And so I called Doc Bonson back and said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it. And here's why. And he was great about it. He said, no, no harm, no foul. We're good. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, I mean, of course, these are all alternate realities, right? Like, what would happen if you'd stayed in? What would happen if you'd, you know, I, I have the same, I have the same thoughts myself. I mean, it, I've had a great career and an awesome life. There's all these choice points that happen along the way, you know, and, and you know, there, there's good options on, on both ways, you know, making a right or making a left. My life is what it yeah. is. Yours is what it is. And 
hopefully we can just continue to uh, do what we can to to make the academy proud, to to live up to our class motto, duty shall be done, and um, continue to serve others. Um, yeah, the one, the, one, the one thing I do, I take away from, and I tell this to cadets all the time, like, you really need to think through what branch you want to go. Because I, I will say this, and it will sound very flippant, but I picked infantry because that was a thing to do. But, you know, once I really thought about what I would have done, I, I would have been an armor officer. I would have loved being an I mean, John Cook and I were close. Uh, you know, we went to prep school together, but we got really close after West Point. We were both stationed down there together, and we were deployed to uh, Egypt. And, uh, you know, we had some downtime between exercises and stuff. And I had communications back home, and so, um, you know, I would take care of a bunch of the soldiers. And so one day I asked one if they could call their wives if they had issues and stuff. And uh, one day I said to one of them, I'm like, what's the chances I get to drive one of those M1s? He's like, sir, you can do it tomorrow. So it was John Cook, I, and his... Uh, one of his drivers and I, I we drove them one all over all over uh, Egypt. It was I had a ton of fun, but I would have loved to have been an armor officer. Johnny but Cook. Everything's worked. Everything's worked out fine, but that that would be my you know my advice to anyone, whether it's career outside of the military or the military, like truly understand the dynamics of the organization and what what parts of the organization end up running the company and what parts will never never run the company. Johnny Cook and I got detained together for um, <laughs> open open container of alcohol uh, down in uh, at Brian Sharp's wedding. We walked off the there's he got married on like a on like a riverboat or something. You know, we walked off with like beer cans, you know, and uh, right into like you know some public space. You're not supposed to have open containers. And uh, some some like rent a cop pulled us over. Not, I didn't pull us over a walk, and we got like a talking to. And uh, anyway, he's a good completely dude. Completely shocked that completely <laughs> shocked that JC got had some incident to do with alcohol. <laughs> yeah, but you know he's active duty at the time. I was like this could go horribly wrong for this dude. I was like, I was like, listen, man, like I will. T- I, that is my beer in his hand. Like don't 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 you know? Because I was a civilian at the time. He was. Uh, he had a lot more to lose than me, but ended up not being a big deal, obviously. So, but uh, yeah. So, so um, I had another thing to ask you here. Just a. Uh, by the way, I told the time goes by so fast. We said we're gonna try to make this one hour. We've been talking for one hour and six minutes, so we're gonna wrap this up pretty pretty quickly. But yeah. um, I'm flexible. I'm 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 good. I I'm flexible. Too okay. Longer. All right. Well, you know the thing is, it, the time just goes by so fast. Like you think about, like we like, we had tried to we tried to map this out, like in the arc of the podcast for forty five minutes to an hour, and man, we just like, there's just so much to talk about. But um, just curious about your favorite most memorable memory either as a football player or as a cadet or something like i mean i obviously you're out there for three of our four you know um army navy games where we beat navy like there was a great game against vanderbilt that i remember we came from behind and we won that was an awesome freaking game you know boston college game was a great game um like do, do you have like any kind of like memory that's like seared in your seared in your mind that we were like, wow, this is like amazing that I'm living this life. You know, you'd asked me that earlier today and and there's just so many amazing um, moments and memories that I have. The the one I would say collectively that captures the spirit of like what West Point is and the rivalry with Navy and other things is like army Navy week is really special. Whether you're a football player or not, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Like, my senior year, like I'd made it every, every week I would go and sit in a 
ice bath of 55 degree water and submerged up to my chest. And, you know, I never knew if I was playing the next game and the Vanderbilt game, my knees were really, um, really, it was a tough game. The defense was on the field a lot. I remember, um, winning awards, having, you know, I think it was 24 tackles on the game, which is like unheard of, but they ran the same option that we did. It was just a brutal, brutal game. And I remember flying back in the plane and my knees being so swollen and not sure if I was going to play in Army Navy. And um, ultimately, um, you know, they were thinking about maybe doing the scope. And I was like, you know what? I'm not taking the chance. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play no matter what. But I, I also just remember that moment saying, I'm never going to have the chance to do this again. I am participating in Army Navy. The broad and jockstrap rally, I am doing. Like every, they're running the gauntlet behind Bradley Barracks. I, I literally decided I'm doing everything and I don't care what happens because – I'd gotten to that point and I didn't want to miss out on any of it. So um, thank God we don't have social, we didn't have social media. Then, but there's a, there's a picture of me standing in front of a platoon of, uh, of plebes and yearlings. And there were a couple of firsties in there for G2 uh, with, you know, with a jockstrap on and they were dressed in jockstraps and, and, and bras. And we ran to coach Young's house in our jockstraps and bras and panties. And uh, we knocked on his door and I was standing in the crowd and he looked at me and coach Young could be, you know, he could get upset pretty quickly. Um, and he was never that close to any one player. And he looked at me and he just smiled from ear to ear. He was like, you sound a bitch. Like how dare you show up on a Wednesday before army Navy in a jock strap with as bad as your knees are and how much we're worried about you playing. And, uh, you know, it was, it was so like, it, it was so, enter- it was so uplifting to be part of those cadets running up there. It's Harry running, you know, you remember, um, one of our classmates, Charlie, uh, I cannot remember Charlie's last name starts with a C, slipped coming back from the parking lot, uh, the day before graduation, uh, boozing and like trashed his face for graduation. But anyway, Costanza, uh, Charlie Costanza, Charlie, Charlie Costanza. Yeah. Well, general, um, general Charlie Costanza. He's a, he's a general. <laughs> yeah. General. yeah. General. Yeah. There are some crazy Charlie Costanza stories that cannot be broadcast on this podcast. Uh, uh, no, uh, I, there, there are some good ones. So anyway, I mean, that, <laughs> anyway, that whole week was a, that whole week was a complete blast. I, I um, was also chronic. There was a writer that wanted to talk to me every day to do like a diary of army Navy week. And, uh, you know, I remember we, we we lathered up the floors and we were six floor Bradley Barracks, short wing and long wing, and people were doing, you know, the equivalent of beer slide. It was just a blast. And, you know, I'll tell you the game itself, like our our era there, you know, the team was great again, better, better than even when we were there. Um, but our era, like the, the, the stadium, like Navy was five and five. We were five and five. It was on the eve of the Gulf War. Um, Lee Greenwood sang the song that we heard every day going to Ike Hall, proud to be American during halftime. Um, you know, this guy Alton Grizzard was their quarterback. He'd started for four years. It was a like really big, big week in our country and the eyes were all on us because we're about to go to war. And it was just one of those things that I remember standing in the tunnel before the game and I've seen the clip since and I'm standing next to Brett Peckett's with the front of the team and about to take the field and, uh, the energy and it was just electric and, it was like an out of body experience, and that's got to be. I mean, I, I mean, I, I was not. A, I I was in the in the stands. I mean, I was I was there. I mean, it was it was, it, and it continues to be like it's a similar experience. It is so electric and so magical, and you're just like, wow, I can't believe I'm part of this thing. But I can only imagine what it must be like to be on that field, you know, or to like yeah. to sing the alma mater and to base the Corps of Cadets. I mean, that has got to be just like 
unbelievable. The gravity. Yeah, yeah I mean, our, our, our 12th man was phenomenal. I, you know, it's funny. I have my, uh, my father-in-law for my 50th birthday uh, put on a, um, one of the GSB drives the game. And uh, of course, my kids are now all old enough to watch it. And my younger kids don't know as much about it as my older kids because it's so far, it's, we're further and further away. Um, but we had Marissa when we were 26. So she's been going to Army Navy and she kind of knows, you know, all the players and who played and who did and all those types of things. But the younger kids have no clue. So they wanted to watch it. And we're watching it. And Holly, I, you know, they go to the stands all the time. And like, if you watch that, like all of our class, there's a lot of our classmates. Uh, John Johan, Holly, bunch of others that were just all over the TV because the stands were going crazy, and and the network wanted to show America the spirit of uh, you know America's finest. And on the field, there was a, a point when um, you know we dominated the game, but there was a point when there was a three point spread. We were winning twenty seventeen, and what happened was our defense stopped them. It was midway through the third quarter. They punted, and uh, General Rick Angle now. Uh, was our punt returner and the ball uh, he moved away from the ball wasn't going to catch it and it took a weird bounce and hit his leg and they recovered the ball in our 30 so they score they go up and uh or i'm sorry they do score and that's when it becomes three points and we're doing everything we can to keep them out it's a short field they're on like the 20 and i just remember thinking in the huddle looking at john robb because we were both linebackers we faced each other and i remember just looking at him and like the look in his eyes and the feeling we had is like we're gonna we gotta beat these guys we let them back in the game and ultimately we did um but the crowd was going you couldn't even you couldn't even hear yourself think it was so loud it's unbelievable and then after the game you guys like you know you're in the locker room coach jim young gives you you know your your pep talk or your like you know your send off first e- well did we play in a bowl game as firsties that year or was that was that the last game of the year we did not. We went. We won that game. Went six and five. There's talk about us going to the Hawaii Bowl, but we that was Dude. back when they only had like there's only like 15 bowls, and so we didn't we didn't get the bid. Now if we beat Air Force, I mean that was one of the worst memories ever. But um, we lost to Air Force at home in the rain, and so Air Force ended up getting the bid to the Liberty Bowl, and they actually beat Ohio State, ironically enough. Um, and then there's still a chance for us to go to the Hawaii Bowl. We beat Vanderbilt, and uh, but it never came to fruition. So it wasn't clear that that was your last game. That, that, that no, last... no, no. But no, by that point we knew it was our last. Uh, game. So, so what was that like? Like you're fi- like back in the locker room, beat Navy, cadet career's over. You know, we are. You know, we're 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 about to go to war, right? I mean, because that was like, uh, you know, that was like we're we're we were that was Desert Shield time that was happening. Like what what was yeah, exactly. what was that like? Well, was, um, you know, Coach Young retired as well. So it was his last game. So it was pretty emotional. And the year before, you know, we got upset and Alton Grizzard, you know, drove them down the field and they kicked a field goal with 11 seconds left to beat us. Frank Shank kicked the field goal and Grizzard single-handedly beat us. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happened What happened in that game was, um, well, first at Air Force, you know, I think it was the week before or it was a couple weeks before that, our starting, you know, field side linebacker, Michael Toole, at his knee, um, and then during that game, um, Bob Wagner couldn't play and torn his hamstring, was starting outside linebacker, couldn't play. And then Pat Davey, who was a three-year starting inside linebacker, broke his wrist. Um, we just had a bunch of injuries during the game. That's not why we lost. They, they ultimately just had more, they had more uh, desire and they, they found a way to win. But I've never seen more grown men cry like babies in my life, and not, including yourself, my, myself, mm-hmm. in the locker room after that game. Like It was as if 
you know, we had just lost the war and half our soldiers got killed. I mean, everyone was in that locker room. It was devastating. I'd never, I'd never experienced anything in my life up until that point, And I'd still not experienced anything like that. We're such disappointment, such, I mean, and, th- and that class above us, that senior class that, I mean, you know, we went to the Sun Bowl, we went whatever, uh, I think nine and two lost by a point, you know, everyone was coming back. We graduated very few people. I think we graduated like three starters and then O'Neill blew out his knee and then uh, Ben Barnett blew out his knee. Um, and it's through the year, we just had more and more injuries. And so we ended up six and five junior year, but we should have easily been eight, nine and two and going to another bowl. And so going into senior year, you know, we were hoping to rebound. Um, and so we were just thankful that we beat Navy, thankful we got back to a winning record. And, um, you know, in the locker room, we'd sing on Brave Old Army team when we won, but not when we lost. Um, and so and we'd also do the rocket. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Coach Young doesn't know how to do the rocket. So, you know, he said his final goodbyes and stuff, and that was emotional. But I, I'll never forget his final rocket and singing on Old Brave, on old, brave old Army team. Um, for the last time. Probably not a dry yeah. eye in the house doing that. Yeah, you know, it, was, it was a heck of a thing. I bet. You know, you, speaking of what, you, you mentioned Alton Grizzard twice, and it just, not to digress, but I mean, tragically, Alton Grizzard was, was murdered um, two years after graduation. And um, so, you know, while we lost the Navy, our, our cow year, um, you know, I'm sure that's a memory that his family holds dear. And those guys are, those guys are our brothers, right? And our sisters. And so for him to have that victory is good. And uh, ironically, tragically, uh, I was in that BOQ that night that he was murdered. I was, I was in the, I was, it's just a crazy sort of uh, uh, coincidence of events, but I was on a mission out there with the joint, um, with the uh, border patrol and staying in the BOQ in Coronado when that happened. And, and like, it was bizarre. I mean, the whole thing, the next morning, the CID investigation, this truck getting towed away. And I saw, like, this Navy 91 sticker. I'm like, uh, you know, football, Navy 91. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. And then I find out the whole thing. I was like, I mean, to this day, I still I hear the name Alton Grizzard, and I just have that horrible memory. But anyway. Yeah, tragic. Yeah, yeah. So, but, uh, and then, you know, I, uh, you say you go back to army Navy, you, you like, you, you know, these guys, right? Like, you know, the, the Navy football players you played against, right? Yeah. Holly and Mark, uh, West were, um, stationed in Fort Knox. And I think the story from my collection was they walked out of their house one morning and their neighbor had a big sheet, um, in his yard, um, you know, uh, secured in the yard that said beat army and they went and knocked on his door and said, who the hell are you? And he said, my name is Dave Lowell Foran. And, uh, he happened to be, he, ironically, he was a Navy football player class of 92 and he grew up best friends with all in Grizzard. Their dads were in the Navy together and they got stationed at different posts together and played high school football together. And, um, Holly and Mark and, and we go back to army Navy game and hang out together. And I was like, you gotta meet this guy that lives across the street from us. And she introduced me to Dave and, I think that was in 2001. Um, and, uh, he and I had a few drinks together at the Irish pub and did a shot at midnight to Alton, very close to Alton and very emotional. And, um, you know, like you said, it's just our brothers on the other side of the line. And, um, Dave and I then became closer friends and had a bet every year. In fact, that was the, that was before the more recent three wins. That was the last time we had won. And I got a sweatshirt from him. 
And then every year I had to send him some type of garb and it got really escalated. I fucking sent him my, my robe one, one year and I told him <laughs> he, could, he only could keep it for a year until I could buy one to replace it with. And, uh, we became great friends with, uh, him and Patty, through Mark and, and Holly. And, um, lo and behold, um, we ran, I ran out of stuff to give him. He said, why don't you just buy me and my friends drinks the next year if we win? And so he meet, you know, he then met us at the hotel Marriott on Market Street. And, uh, sure enough, he showed up with like 20 people. So I'm buying drinks for 20 Navy guys and, and gals for a couple hours. And thank God we finally won because now he's buying them for us. But, uh, so I got to know a lot of his other teammates and, and, and players on the team and other. And so it's been a great, it's been a great relationship. What a wonderful tradition and what a great honor, you know, to be able to, to call ourselves members of the Long Gray Line and have that experience and that, that rivalry, but brotherhood with, uh, with our, you know, fellow uh, academies, which brings us back full circle to the, one of the reasons why we have this podcast, which is to call attention to our class gift. It's to foster great relationships, uh, continue relationships, and, um, and so um, speaking of all academies, this is the All Academy Giving Week. Um, you know, Anthony, you've led the way in terms of generosity with the academy and leadership in terms of giving back and really shaping the experience of our, of our cadets. I know that, you know, from the early days, you were a big proponent of supporting the, Ar- the Army Cyber Institute and, um, and, you know, recognizing having been, you know, covering companies that are, uh, you know, tech, that are tech companies and also having led tech enterprises, the importance of, uh, of cyber uh, capability in the modern warfare and next generation battlefield. So do you have any kind of final thoughts for us in terms of the importance of our class gift, the importance of giving back to West Point, or just general um, thoughts uh, about the experience and the impact of West Point in, in your life? Yeah, no, absolutely. So the, I mean, the Academy's never been in a, in a better spot. Um, the impact it's having on the world with grads and, um, the impact it has, has on the Army. Um, in order for it to continue to be successful, we do have to continue to drive towards greater diversity of gender and, and race and greater diversity of sexual orientation. And, um, and that's an important element to it. And, you know, there are these, uh, margins of excellence programs that the superintendent set those priorities and that's definitely an important element of attracting the best and brightest which our military benefits from um west point's also increasingly a center of excellence for different important um areas of infrastructure for our country and so you know there's the 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 cyber um institute um that's very critical to doing research and having a connectivity to the civilian population you know if you think about the threats our nation has um you know when we were born in the 60s. Um, it was the advent of a potential nuclear war. Well, today, all of a sudden, the size of a, of a opposition force could be tiny, but the magnitude of the impact they could have is asymmetric because of the impact of, of cyber warfare on, on energy grids, on security systems, on, on data. And when I was at Twitter, I, I faced, you know, I faced real life situations where the CIA and the federal government needed the information to make a difference in the world. And I, I can just tell you the amount of um, technology and the advancements are rapid and the economic need is significant. So, um, you know, giving back to West Point is critical to enhancing the cadet experience, but it's also critical to continue to build out these important infrastructure needs. And, 
the reason why West Point's the first engineering school in the country and the thing that attracted me was engineering um, is because our nation needed to build bridges and our nation needed to build railroads and transportation logistics so we could build economic foundation that led to our us being a, a world power and it also led to our, our military's capabilities. So um, we're, at, we're at the advent of another type of war and a transformation to one of bits, ones and zeros. And, um, and it's not just great people that we need, but we now actually need great, great technology capabilities. So um, I know I wouldn't be um, anywhere close to where I am today um, without having had the chance to go to West Point. So I'm, I'm eternally I'm grateful. And if anyone wants to talk more about it, I'm available and huge um, advocate for everything that the Academy is trying to do. And we have another big campaign coming up here and um, it's, it's our time to show the leadership given where we are in our careers versus other classes. Anthony, I have a quick question for you. As someone who is involved in technology, who's made a, a tremendous leap into uh, such as Twitter and whatnot. Is there any tip that you can give some of us on some possibly what's the next step? With technology, early startups, what you see in the future as far as technology is uh, what's coming down the pipe. Are you, are you aware of anything? Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, the, you know, the, I would, there's not one thing I would tell you. I would just say the pace of innovation, the, the pace of change isn't slowing down. Um, it's been the case that every time there's been one of these, you know, prolonged periods of innovation that people are like, well, what's next? There's nothing else to do. And Trust me, there's other things to do. The amount of uh, money that's going into startup companies in Silicon Valley is magnitude greater than it's ever been. The ease of building these new technologies is significantly better than it was before. There's such an infrastructure you can build on top of, and that infrastructure is being built by Amazon and Google and Microsoft and cloud computing and hosting. And it's allowing um, the cost for innovation to be tiny relative to what it was back in the 90s. So, do you think um, we? Do no you think though we've hit a technological? ceiling as far as what can be done you know with smart devices cell phones apple watches so on and so forth oh oh not even close what, what's going to happen with artificial intelligence and machine learning will blow people's minds away up okay. until this point we have these are dumb devices right we think they're smart devices they're, they're dumb devices relative to where they'll be with machine learning and, and artificial intelligence and it's not just the phone but the car and and trucks and logistics and um, long haul carriers and transportation and the magnitude of change that's going to happen over the next uh, next two decades will dwarf the change that's happened over the last two decades. And it's going to be stuff. it's going to be an exciting couple of decades because we will continue to be leaders in this field. We got a bunch of classmates that are transitioning out of the out of the military. They'll probably be able to you know hop into some of these amazing uh roles i know that like uh john bricky is one he's kind of left went to kind of straight into cyber uh, security and mm -hmm. you know a few others a few of our classmates that are transitioning you know they're going to be doing some amazing things and continuing to uh lead the way um i want to just uh close out which is a couple a couple things first of all make sure you support our class gift with the uh, all academy challenge Secondly, just, you know, and finally, I think just thinking about your um, contributions, uh, Anthony, and I think it comes down to, you know, the three things, you know, the uh, adaptation from duty on our country, which is uh, run after the problems, get to the truth and make your footprint, make your footprint bigger than your foot. And uh, thank you for leading the way. Thank you for being an awesome classmate and um, and uh, duty shall be done. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you for doing this, by the way. You're showing great leadership and bringing us all together. 
Uh, I just like to point out, I think the Gators are number one with two Gators having been on the first 18 uh, podcasts. So thank you for that as well. (laughs) (laughs) Anthony, hold on. We'll be with you in one moment. Uh, Jamie, refresh everybody how they can find the podcast. They can, uh, they can download. Well, the best way to do is to go to podbean.com because that's where you can just listen to it. You can listen to a fast forward. There's a Podbean app. You could download onto your Apple device or your Android device. That's my preferred way to listen to it. You can also like go into Facebook and listen to it through Facebook Live, but that's generally um, that's generally not as good as going to Podbean. And if you download the app on from Podbean on your mobile device, you can subscribe to the updates and the alerts you'll receive when a new episode is uploaded, and listen to it at your convenience. Thanks, everybody. Navy. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast. Please check back on this Facebook page for information about featured guests and upcoming episodes of the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast. Podcast.